Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program. My name is Matthew State. I'm the Obendorf Family Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry and Chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm pleased to introduce today's program, Groundbreaking Innovations in Mental Health at UCSF, which is supported by the John Pritzker Family Fund and is part of a series of programs at the Commonwealth Club that looks at today's mental health challenges. While the club has resumed in-person programming at its building on the Embarcadero, today's program is obviously virtual. We're pleased that you've been able to join us. Other programs in this series can be found on the club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org. Today's program focuses on innovation in the area of mental health, and you'll hear from some truly brilliant young scientists and clinicians at UCSF who are revolutionizing how we understand serious mental illness and care for patients who are suffering. I think it's fair to say that there's no area of medicine today that is faced with more daunting challenges or more exciting opportunities. Similar to other fields in medicine, we are harnessing remarkable technological and scientific advances to address some of the most complex and mysterious questions in human biology. At the same time, we are on the front lines battling some of the most pressing social problems this country is currently facing, including housing insecurity and homelessness, the opioid and methamphetamine epidemics, the widespread incarceration of the mentally ill, and systemic inequities in our healthcare system. Today, you will hear about ongoing work that is addressing this full range of challenges and how the simultaneous pursuits of world-class science and clinical care, coupled with a commitment to the public mission at UCSF, drives the creation of new knowledge that has the potential to transform how we care for those suffering and may well hold the key to finally eliminating the stigma that so plagues our patients and their families. We are again thankful to the John Pritzker Family Fund and the Commonwealth Club for presenting today's program. I'm now pleased to turn over the program to my colleague, Andrew Crystal, the Vice Chair for Research at UCSF's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, who will serve as the moderator for today's program. Andrew. Thank you, Matt. Hello and good afternoon. I'm Andrew Crystal, Ray and Dagmar Dolby Distinguished Professor and Vice Chair for Research in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF. Before getting started, I wanted to again thank the John Pritzker Family Fund for supporting this series of programs on mental health at the Commonwealth Club. There could be no more important time to have these conversations. I'm pleased to be joined today by several of my UCSF colleagues. To start today's program, each will give a brief overview of their work, and then we'll have a discussion covering a range of topics. Well, it appears that Andrew Crystal, our moderator, is having technical difficulties. Um, So I'll I'll jump in for him here. I'm pleased to be joined today by several of um, our UCSF colleagues here. To start today's program, each will give a brief overview of their work, and then we'll have a discussion covering a range of topics, including the areas where there is excitement about emerging innovative treatments in the mental health field, important areas of challenge, and areas where the work of these individuals overlap. So we'll also invite audience questions. If you have any questions for one or more of the panelists that we'll talk today, um, please post them in the YouTube chat box and we'll get to that as many of them as we can. Okay, so let's jump into today's program. Uh, We'll start with Christopher Bartley. Uh, He's an adjunct instructor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and a Hannah Gray Fellow through the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. 
Chris, can you tell us about some of your work today? Um, yes, thank you, Catherine, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for hosting this program. So I'm a physician scientist here in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and I actually did my psychiatry residency training here at UCSF, and I was really overjoyed to be able to stay on after training and, and to put both my MD and my PhD in neurobiology to work. You know, so all of our psychiatric medications act directly on the brain, um, but we're increasingly learning about the intricate relationship between the brain and the immunosystem. So one question that I'm focused on is whether the immune system is an underappreciated therapeutic target for a subset of individuals with mental illness. And so on the physician side, I have a small immunopsychiatry clinic where I provide consultations for adults with known or suspected immune-related psychiatric disorders. And then on the, psych uh, on the scientist side, I work closely with investigators in the division of neuroimmunology to discover new brain-targeting antibodies that may be relevant or may cause neuropsychiatric um, illness. So this research has been generously supported by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, as well as the Dita Blair Research Initiative for Disorders of the Brain. Great, thank you. Um, so I'll introduce myself as well. I'm Catherine Skangas. I'm a health sciences assistant clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences here at UCSF. My work centers on using new brain stimulation technology to develop personalized treatments for major depression. Depression is incredibly common. There are 250 million people worldwide, and it's a leading cause of disability. And I think you know the need for mental health treatment is more evident than ever during this current COVID climate. While therapy and medications are affected in the, effective in the majority of people, there's a substantial minority of people who remain resistant to all available therapies. We're all familiar with cardiac pacemakers, which deliver small electrical pulses to the heart to maintain an appropriate cardiac rhythm. The brain, like the heart, is an electrical organ. It's a very complex organ, it has 100 billion neurons. These are organized into brain circuits. And we're really starting to appreciate the intrinsic electrical properties of a healthy brain and also how this circuit functioning can go awry in disease. And so from this perspective, the idea of brain stimulation might seem obvious, but developing a pacemaker for the brain, which is also known as deep brain stimulation, where you place an electrode inside the brain and deliver therapeutic stimulation, it's been a daunting prospect given the brain's complexity. And initial positive efforts of DBS by other groups have unfortunately not replicated in larger studies. And there are a couple of reasons this might be. First, the experience of depression is different across patients, which is also likely reflected in their neural circuitry. All of our brains are wired differently. And the second reason is that like early cardiac pacemakers, early brain stimulation has applied a stimulus without being guided by any signal back from diseased tissue. So in a multidisciplinary collaboration at UCSF, we're developing novel personalized approaches and leveraging artificial intelligence technology to develop personalized smart brain pacemakers. And we recently demonstrated the proof of principle of this approach in one severely depressed patient. And in this patient, we mapped out her personalized brain circuitry, identified brain signals that encoded her depression, and then developed a strategy to trigger a pulse of stimulation when this depression signal was sensed. And we're now delivering this life-saving stimulation directly to her depression circuits to treat her depression. We're also running a larger study of this new treatment, and we have plans to translate the treatment so that it can be performed 
through non-invasive modalities as well. So I'd like to introduce our next um, person, Andrew Lee. He is an assistant adjunct professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Um, Andrew? Hi there. So my name is uh, Andrew Moses Lee. Uh, I'm the director of the OCD program here at UCSF. Uh, I'm also a neuroscientist that runs a lab focused on understanding brain networks, underlying OCD, as well as other uh, anxiety spectrum disorders. Uh, so a lot of the goal of my um, uh, investigations is to identify points of intervention within brain networks for targeted brain stimulation therapies. Um, we specialize in using imaging as well as brain recordings to characterize patients' brain networks. And then we use brain stimulation modalities uh, such as non-invasive transcranial magnetic stimulation and, as Dr. Skangos mentioned, uh, deep brain stimulation to treat the most refractory cases of OCD and uh, anxiety spectrum disorders. Thank you, Moses. I'm sorry, everyone. I have had an unstable internet connection here. Hopefully that won't happen again. Before we uh, go on to introducing our, our next panelist, I just want to make sure that you're aware that we are going to be in, in answering your questions. We invite audience questions. And if you have any, please post them in the YouTube chat box and we'll get to as many of them as we can. Next, we want to go to Fumi Mitsuishi. Dr. Mitsuishi is Health Sciences Associate Clinical Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF and Director of the Citywide, Citywide Case Management at, at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. Uh, Dr. Mitsuishi. Thank you, Dr. Crystal, um, and the Commonwealth Cup for having us. I direct a UCSF clinic called Citywide Case Management. Uh, we provide intensive social and behavioral health services to over 1,500 San Francisco residents who experience serious mental illness, housing instability, often criminally justice involved, and a lot of trauma and abject poverty. Our motto is we will meet our clients wherever they are, which means that our services are wraparound, rely on human engagement, and are outreach heavy. Um, we believe that overcoming stigma, recovering from those challenges I just listed, and ultimately attaining a meaningful life are all possible. Today, I will share a project that aims to tackle methamphetamine addiction and promote digital belonging in a population left behind by the digital divide. Thank you. Okay, thanks, everyone. Uh, clearly, your cutting-edge innovations in mental health at UCSF are poised to address a range of mental health challenges at the individual level, address stigma-related issues, while at the same time helping address some of society's and our city and region's most challenging issues from homelessness to substance abuse. Um, now we're going to discuss these issues a bit further with our guests and focus on cross-cutting issues they face and opportunities and challenges that they see in the future. So I'm going to ask a series of questions uh, for discussion. So first question I'd like to explore is about personalized care. Although we'd like mental health care to be personalized, as occurs in some medical specialties like cancer care, there is unfortunately very little true personalization of care currently possible with some of our core approaches to treatment. That includes medications, and brain stimulation therapies. And um, Catherine, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell us more specifically how your work is advancing our capacity to help people on an individual level? So our work is advancing the capacity to help people at the individual level 
by identifying where in the brain each person needs treatment and then using a patient's own brain activity to determine when the treatment should be delivered. So let me tell you about how we did this for one recent patient. We first mapped out her depression circuitry to really an unprecedented unprecedented degree of specificity. One of our collaborators and neurosurgeons here at UCSF placed 10 electrodes throughout her brain in regions related to emotion, and that's what's shown here um, on this brain. She came into the lab and stayed with us for 10 days with her brain connected to a computer, um, and then we could deliver electrical stimulation to precise brain regions and observe her response. And we observed an incredibly complex set of responses. For example, with stimulation in one region, she might say, I feel like I'm reading a good book. And in another, I feel tingles of pleasure. And by mapping out the circuit diagram for her emotional experiences in this way, we found one brain area, the ventral capsule, that when stimulated, consistently took away her sadness and made her feel like, in her words, me again. So we then identified brain signals that encoded her depression. By listening in to brain activity, while we asked her how she was feeling many times over those 10 days, we found a brain signal that predictably detected when her symptoms became most severe. And this signal was in part of the brain called the amygdala. And when amygdala activity was high, it predicted that her symptoms were at their worst. And then based on this information, we could implant a chronic brain pacemaker, an intelligent device that we programmed to work through an iterative feedback loop. The device delivers stimulation personalized to her depression, and it does so by continuously looking for that neural signal we identified and then delivering stimulation when it is detected. And once we started treatment, this patient's depression symptoms immediately improved, and she went into remission actually within a few months. And we have a lot of work left to do before this treatment's available, but it shows that personalized treatment on the individual level level is possible in depression. Well, perhaps we can go on to the um, next participant. Um, Chris? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Um, You know, I think it was very fitting that Andrew mentioned cancer in his question. Um, At one point, all cancers were really lumped together, but um, over the past few decades, we've learned that many different types, that there are many different types of cancers, and um, each of these types of cancers is really defined by um, a molecular profile, and there are molecular biomarkers that have become clinical tests that point medical professionals towards therapeutics that have been developed specifically for that patient's cancer. So in in many ways, our diagnosis of mental illnesses is is where cancer was decades ago. Um, But what has me so excited about the emerging area of immunopsychiatry is that in just the past few years, next generation technologies have been developed that allow us to discover new immune biomarkers of neuropsychiatric illness. Um, Some of these biomarkers are antibodies, and antibodies typically target um, microbes that infect our body, but sometimes are misdirected against brain tissue and can directly alter the pattern of brain activity um, and and change a person's behavior, perceptions, or mood. Um, Historically, we've been able to look for about 20 of these misdirected antibodies at once, Um, but now, at least on the research side at UCSF, we have the ability to screen for over a million misdirected antibodies in a single screen in a single test. Um, And so we're hopeful that some of these newly discovered biomarkers will become tests that will allow us to individualize diagnosis and and therapy for patients with mental illness. 
That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, Moses, do you want to tell us about your work? Sure, yeah. So in terms of personalization, actually one of the goals of my lab is to develop uh, targeted personalized brain stimulation therapies uh, for patients by understanding their brain networks underlying their symptoms. Uh, because I'm the director of the OCD program here at UCSF, uh, my lab mainly focuses on uh, developing these paradigms for patients with OCD. And the reason why my lab focuses on brain stimulation treatments in particular uh, is because these interventions target very specific anatomical circuits in the brain, uh, which have the possibility of leading to a much greater benefit with fewer side effects. Um, this level of precision is in contrast to other types of treatments like medications that really impact uh, the entire brain. Um, so currently, the way that we're going about doing this is by using uh, functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, as a way to identify abnormal activity associated with OCD. And then we're using sophisticated machine learning algorithms to see if there's a network fingerprint that can predict whether somebody will benefit from TMS delivered to one particular location as opposed to another. Uh, so in this way, by understanding their network, we can personalize the targeting of TMS uh, using brain imaging. The other way that we're um, advancing TMS care is basically by doing it a, a completely different way. Uh, currently, TMS treatments are delivered once a day over a period of six to eight weeks. However, it's unclear why we only provide uh, one treatment per day. Uh, so you can imagine if you could uh, deliver TMS 10 times a day over a compressed time frame, then there's a possibility that patients can get better 10 times faster and with uh, potentially greater uh, efficacy as well. Uh, so my lab, in collaboration with groups at Cornell as well as Stanford, are now, now trying to do this. Uh, we're finding very uh, promising initial results uh, using these accelerated protocols, which is very exciting. Um, lastly, similar to Catherine, we're also trying to personalize uh, DBS care for patients with OCD, but in a slightly different way using uh, imaging, structural imaging, in order to identify targets uh, within OCD networks that have the ability to impact the entire uh, OCD network in a very uh, strong way. Uh, we're hoping that these imaging-based methods can lead to um, uh, better outcomes for patients and also reduce the amount of time to benefit for patients as well. Thank you, Moses. I'm back again, hopefully, uh, for the rest of the program, but um, apologize about that. Uh, Fumi, could you tell us more about how you're tailoring care to the needs of individuals? Sure. So I'm, I'm actually going to flip the script here a little bit. Um, I think we believe that helping to change the life course of systematically marginalized folks, uh, we kind of need to engage them through relationship and ultimately personalize our care. And this is to say that change happens at the speed of trust. Now, the frontier for us is to quantify this work. So we're launching a new project. Uh, it's called GAIN, G-A-I-N. We're partnering with San Francisco Adult Probation Department to deploy our smartphone app called Sprocket uh, to provide treatment for methamphetamine and other stimulant use disorders. This app uh, will not only provide treatment, but it will also quantify clinical activities and facilitate evaluation of the project. I think the goal here is to understand and document the best implementation practices to tackle this scourge of methamphetamine addiction with people who face really huge challenges, including digital access and literacy problems. To us, personalized means customized, connection-based trust with the rigor of tools for evaluation. Thank you. Thanks for me. And um, while we're while you're talking, I'm, we're going to ask you another question. Sure. Uh, what has been the impact of the pandemic on your work? 
Yes, uh, I think everyone's been affected by the pandemic. I can give you a little snapshot of where citywide has been in our client population. Uh, when we first sheltered in place, I was honestly relieved by this public health step and worried also about our clients. Many of them live in uh, live off about $20 a week. Uh, they can only eat one meal a day and they live in these low cost hotel rooms small enough to just fit a single bed. Um, Right when shelter in place happened, basic social services such as social security, so this is income source, they were shutting down. Health services were uh, shifting to telehealth, which you can't really access when you don't have a phone or data plan, don't have, don't know how to use Zoom, right? So, and of course, our clinic had to close down the therapeutic milieu where clients get meals and participate in groups and get daily meds and have community support. So huge losses here. I think that losing this community meant social isolation, more behavioral health symptoms, relapse to substance use and overdoses. And, uh, and these worries really came to be tragically true. So compared to 2019, right, the number of deaths in 2020 jumped by uh, 50% among our client population who you may also know that pre-pandemic, just in general, have always died 20 years earlier than most of us. Uh, we know now that these deaths were not due to COVID, but they were mostly due to drug overdoses. Um, and, you know, so it, the, the picture is quite grim. But at the same time, I think what the pandemic did was kind of give us flashes of hope. Uh, for example, we were able to distribute 250 donated cell phones from UCSF. These were a lifeline for clients. And it was an initial trial to see what would it be like to have digital access for our clientele. We also collaborated with a nonprofit to distribute nearly 10,000 meals a week to people in need early on in the pandemic. And honestly, like more than anything, the resilience of our clients and all the people on the ground was really awe-inspiring. So that's it for uh, my little pandemic update. Great work, thank you. Um, Chris, I appreciate your response to the same question. What's been the impact of the pandemic on what you've been focusing on? Yeah, um, yeah I, think, I think it's a good question. So, you know, from the perspective of immunopsychiatry, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has really allowed us to test some longstanding hypotheses in, in, in real time. Um, and there have been a number of epidemiologic studies that have shown that there's a, a correlation between a history of serious infection um, and an increased risk for a future mental health diagnosis. And it's um, been hypothesized that perhaps that relationship is mediated by autoimmunity, that the infection triggers autoimmunity, um, which may affect um, um, mental health. And so because so many people have been infected with SARS-CoV-2 and the testing has been so widespread, we've really had the opportunity to, to look at the relationship between infection and, and mental illness with much more rigor. Um, so there was, a, there was a recent study by Paul Harrison's group published in Lancet Psychiatry, um, where they showed that COVID-19 patients have an increased risk of a future neurologic or psychiatric diagnosis, even when comparing to other respiratory viral infections. Um, so at UCSF, we've had the chance to use some of the next generation technologies for immune profiling that I mentioned before um, to really take a, a broad look at the immune system in individuals with neuropsychiatric symptoms in the setting of COVID-19. Uh, and what we found is that in some patients, not only does the immune system show a response to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but that there's also a dysregulated and mis mistargeted immune reactivity to their own nervous system. 
Um, so we recently published a report in JAMA Neurology of three teenagers who um, developed acute psychotic and, and mood symptoms in the setting of COVID-19. Uh, and so we found both antiviral and anti-brain antibodies in the cerebral spinal fluid of two of these um, teenagers. And what we'd really like to know now is whether these antibodies are, are really driving the psychiatric symptoms or whether they're simply a reflection of, of immune dysregulation. It's gonna take some time to answer that question, but I think that this pandemic um, has indicated to us that it's an important question to ask. Thank you. Um, I wanna shift gears with another question. We'll stay with you, Chris. Um, how does your work have the potential to change the way we deliver mental health care or think about mental illness? Yeah, so you know the work that I'm doing really extends beyond COVID-19 research to mental illnesses more broadly. Um, right now, a typical workup for a mental illness is um, comprised primarily of a diagnostic interview and, and maybe some basic blood work. Um, in many cases, this, this may be sufficient, but if you're at a tertiary care center like UCSF, it may include more advanced blood work, neuroimaging, and possibly genetic testing. However, immune testing is not part of the current diagnostic evaluation. So my work you know, really seeks to understand how we can apply the copious knowledge that we've gained about the immune system and uh, medical illnesses to mental illnesses. Um, the long-term goal is, is really to translate um, mental illness-specific immune profiles into guidance for clinical decision-making. And this work should really um, you know, expand the number of tools that we have at our disposal to get the right diagnosis, which should ultimately get us closer to the right treatment. Thank you. Um, Catherine, would you mind answering the same question about how your work is impacting the mental health landscape? Sure. Well, typical depression treatments like antidepressant medications are taken every day, regardless of whether or not a patient has symptoms. And our work has the potential to change the way we deliver mental health because it, it suggests there might be another way that you could deliver treatment only when a patient has experienced symptoms as a means to treat the disorder. And delivering the smallest amount of treatment needed in this way has the potential to minimize side effects and prevent adaptation. It also changes the way we think about mental illness. Typically, disorders like depression are understood to be long-term disorders on the order of weeks or months. Um, and for example, it can take four weeks or longer for an antidepressant medication to start working. In contrast, in our work, we conceptualize depression as a dynamic process where symptoms arise when dysfunctional activity emerges in one of these brain uh, mood-related networks. So in this model, stimulation has an immediate impact on symptom severity. And if we apply this every time symptoms are severe, it can be employed as a means to treat depression. So this work suggests that other rapid-acting treatments like this could also be developed in the future. Moses, do you um, want to jump in here? Sure, yeah. So we're uh, discussing now how we think our, our research can change the way we deliver mental health. Uh, so it's been estimated that about 10% of patients with OCD uh, continue, will continue to have severe ranges of symptoms uh, despite uh, attempts to treat them with medical as well as cognitive therapies. Um, as a director of the OCD program here at UCSF, I see the majority of these patients in our clinic, and I'm keenly aware about how our existing models of mental health uh, have very little to offer this very refractory patient population. 
So I think in, in these particular cases, a different paradigm is necessary where we understand uh, the brain network um, uh, pathology of uh, OCD at a deep level um, by understanding the, the brain networks that mediate it. So, uh, so in the future, what my clinic uh, hopes to do is uh, we hope to be able to uh, get a brain scan on every single patient in addition to a thorough psychiatric evaluation in order to characterize a patient's uh, a network um, uh, network pathology associated with their OCD so that we can use this to target non-invasive non forms of brain stimulation, such as transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, I believe these non-invasive approaches can provide an accessible way to treat a large number of patients uh, with very refractory uh, OCD. In many ways, I think this is like a complementary approach to what Dr. Skangos has been mentioning uh, with efforts to try and personalize deep brain stimulation uh, for, for various psychiatric disorders. Um, so I think that there, what this is implying is that uh, in the field, the emerging field of interventional psychiatry, there's going to be a very important role for neuromodulation to play um, as, as we try and treat these uh, more severe and refractory cases. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Dr. Mitsuishi, appreciate your thoughts on how the work you're doing is changing the landscape of mental health. Absolutely. So um, more than 60% of last year's overdose deaths were actually due to methamphetamine use. Um, there's only one truly evidence-based treatment for methamphetamine use disorder, and that's called contingency management. Uh, however, interestingly, contingency management is not widely used because it's not reimbursed for insurance. That's because it provides rewards for behavior change. So for example, a client or patient might get a voucher or some money for negative drug urine, urine, urine tests, right? And I think in our society, fundamentally, health is a personal responsibility. So there's a moral objection to pay someone to get healthy. Um, at the same time, there's uh, an appetite for this treatment right now in sort of like uh, the larger discourse. Uh, Senator Scott Weiner has pushed a bill through the California legislature to get it covered by public insurance. And the governor did not sign the bill, but set aside some funds in the state budget to pilot the treatment and figure out implementation steps. So the project that we're launching, which is again called the GAIN project, um, will provide contingency management through a smartphone app and delineate a roadmap on how to best deploy this treatment in this population and really is aimed at moving policy. Um, so that's the way I think about changing the landscape. Thank you. Another question for you, Fumi. How can we help ensure everyone benefits from all the innovations that we're hearing about? So in particular in your work, how can we make sure your work can reach the communities most impacted by challenges, including things like stigma? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is such a broad question and one that has so many answers. Um, I think the goal the ultimate goal of what we're doing, all of us here, but specifically in public psychiatry, is to reverse stigma. Uh, there's a, obviously a vicious cycle that happens when a, a, a disorder is stigmatized or a person is stigmatized for a disorder that they have, leading to late detection, inadequate treatment, and also leading to an inability to participate in society. That in of itself can be incredibly debilitating. Um, so I think our role is to reverse this. Um, and we have to highlight strengths rather than pathologies and help our clients 
especially those the, the folks I'm working with, to seek dreams rather than uh, just the bottom line. And so one growth point that we identified during the pandemic is the need to address the digital divide and to move towards something that I'm calling digital belonging. Um, the acute consequences of our clients to be disconnected from their support during the pandemic led to isolation, loss of housing, sometimes death, like we talked about. More chronically, as our society moves towards increased digitization, uh, our clients will not only experience poor health outcomes because digital health is here to stay, but also be increasingly left behind and no longer belong or have very little chance to belong. Um, so digital belonging is an important goal. We need to systematically assess and address literacy, digital literacy, provide the right tools. So for example, I have a client who has hand tremors. These are caused by our medications, the medication I prescribe, right? And um, a smartphone may not be the best tool for them uh, because it's hard to use that when you um, have a tremor. So flip phone or voice command may be better, right? So right tools. Um, we also need to support the digital infrastructure of our public health institutions and encourage industry to adopt their product to allow for greater cognitive and other able diversity. Uh, part of what we are doing with this GAIN project will be to use contingency management to encourage participation in the digital world. Thank you. Obviously, addressing this issue in a comprehensive way on many fronts. It's very exciting. Yeah. Um, Dr. Bartley, appreciate your perspective on this issue. How can we ensure everybody benefits from the kind of innovations you're bringing to mental health? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. So, you know, um, my personal clinic really focuses on um, what I sometimes refer to as lost patients. And these are individuals who have a neuropsychiatric presentation um, with no you know, uh, named illness. And so the neurologists may say, you know, this doesn't look like a neurological disorder to us. And they refer that patient to psychiatry. And the psychiatrist may say, this doesn't look like a psychiatric disorder. And so that patient becomes lost. And so, you know, one of the things that's been really nice about working here at UCSF is that there's been support for forming a, a clinic that really, um, you know, uh, uh, supports crosstalk between both neurology and psychiatry so that when we have these patients um, that may not meet criteria for a well-defined illness, that we can put our heads together and think about how to do a deeper workup to try to provide that, that person clarity and, and also ultimately to provide them the right type of treatment. Um, but outside of that, you know, I think that the question also um, you know, spoke to stigma. And I think that there's still a, a perception that when someone has a mental illness, that it's somehow their fault. Um, which can cause patients or families to delay uh, seeking treatment. Relatedly, you know, when patients do seek care, some patients or family members might push for a biological explanation in an effort to, to offload the blame. Um, yet in my own line of work, we know that psychological stress can negatively impact the immune system. So, you know, how we interpret these markers of immune dysregulation and the direction of causality won't, won't always be so clear. Um, looking back to that COVID-19 study that I mentioned before, it's notable that although all three of these teenagers presented similarly with acute onset mood and psychotic symptoms, one of them didn't have detectable antiviral or anti-brain antibodies. 
Um, you know, so personalized mental health in the age of biomarkers doesn't really mean that everybody will have a biomarker-based diagnosis and a biomarker-guided therapy, um, but rather that we can start to identify those patients who would most benefit from a biological intervention and those who would most benefit from a social or psychological intervention. I think we want to be careful not to look to biology to serve as an explanatory model for all human suffering. Um, you know, any of us who have been in a romantic or filial or, um, you know, um, familial relationship, you know, we know that how we're treated has a real impact on our well-being and fears of how we might be viewed or treated by others because of our own personal characteristics, perhaps, um, can prevent us from seeking mental health care. So, I, you know, I really think that one of the strengths of the, the new Pritzker building that's opening um, is, is that outpatient medical and mental health services for adolescents and teenagers are going to be co-located in the same building. And that, you know, by breaking down physical barriers between services for bodily health and mental health, we can hope, um, we hope to start to chip away at the stigma so that there's no distinction between seeking care for physical health and seeking care for mental health. Thank you, Dr. Bartley. And I think, uh, Dr. Skangos, your work and Dr. Lee's work has the potential to break down stigma as well by identifying circuit dysfunction as an explanatory uh, factor in the mental illness that people experience. I want to now move to the audience questions. We've had a number of them, and I will start with uh, Dr. Skangos. What were the results with the women who w had major depression? Did she feel consistently better from the implant? She did, in fact, feel better. As soon as we turned on the deep brain stimulator, um, she felt better even that afternoon. And with the first time we measured her depression scales, about 11 days later, her depression was reduced by over 50%, and she went into remission within a few months. Um, this is a person who had very severe depression, was depressed since childhood, um, had you know, considered suicide on multiple occasions, had stopped driving due to her depression, had stopped working, um, and was really living in her family's home um, without being taken care of them. And with this treatment, she regained a lot of that function. She started driving again. She became a caregiver for other people in her family. Um, she even started taking computer programming classes and has um, plans to take on um, employment in that field. Uh, so, you know, as a, as a physician, it was really, really encouraging and, and wonderful to observe that transformation. Thank you. A question for Dr. Mitsuishi. Isn't it important to address the fundamental reasons for addiction in general? What are your thoughts about that? The fundamental reasons for addiction. Yeah, I think there are uh, so many factors to be taken into account. Absolutely. And I mean, I think on the one hand, it's a societal problem. Uh, there are a lot of uh, stressors and biological factors as well that lead to addiction. Uh, and absolutely, those need to be addressed. I think we do also have to go back to what we know works. And in the case of methamphetamine addiction, unfortunately, we as a society haven't managed to address them head on. And so the purpose of this project is really do that. Let's go to the evidence, know what works, and use every tool that we have to make sure that you were utilizing the right approach. Um, yeah. That has been a tough challenge, though, to try and understand the, all the factors that drive uh, substance use disorders. I, th I think that is 
a great goal, but hard to achieve so far. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, they should be, and there are a lot of efforts that are ongoing that try to delineate that and try to look at both biological approaches and psycho, um, psychosocial approaches to, to address these issues. Um, I think that addiction obviously is very different from, I think, population to population in some ways. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think you can use a blanket approach to address the issue. Uh, but, you know, is there one fundamental reason why addictions happens? Absolutely not. And that, I think, is the same for any other uh, mental health disorder to some degree, although it sounds like the work of my colleagues here may be indicating that there are some things that could be attributed to a biological factor, which is exciting, to be honest, to find a solution that's so clear cut. But the biological factors vary. I think the, the bottom line message is in every area of mental health, People differ and personalization is needed and taking one approach to fit all just doesn't doesn't suffice. We, we need to move beyond that. And I think you're, all of you are doing work that's helping with that, which is very exciting to see. Another question for Dr. Lee. Um, could a neuropsychiatric evaluation be mapped onto a brain scan uh, or vice versa? So could, it, could this kind of evaluation uh, be a determinant for behavioral health treatments? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, so the fundamental assumption that my lab and, and uh, what I work off of as a neuroscientist here is that every uh, aspect of behavior maps onto a brain circuit. And likewise, every symptom that a patient experiences also maps onto a brain circuit. So, uh, so I don't think about them as separate issues at all. I think about this as being um, the same problem looked at at two different levels. And so, um, so I think whenever a, a patient has a particular symptom, like whether it be obsessions or compulsions, we should be able to find a brain correlate of that. And uh, by intervening in, in many ways, whether it be through medications or therapy, uh, we're actually modifying these, these circuits in a very direct way. Uh, in my lab, we've, we focus on neuromodulation because I think that's the uh, most specific way to modulate these and, 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 uh, and um alter these circuits in a, a therapeutic fashion. Uh, but there, I think there's a, a number of different routes that can lead to uh, benefits for uh, patients. And we have precedent for this in other areas. I happen to do work related to sleep, and we found uh, brain electrical activity markers during sleep that predict very strongly who responds to behavioral treatment for insomnia and who does not. So th there's potential for those approaches. I, and I agree very uh, strongly with Dr. Lee that um, brain, brain activity underlies behavior uh, and, in, and both its likelihood of responding to interventions of all sorts, behavioral and, uh, and uh, so-called so somatic therapies. Um, with, with one question that came up, is, is, which I will answer, is anyone studying the role cortisol plays in debilitating mental health. Um, I don't believe anybody um, on the panel here is, is really focusing on that question. Um, but please, if you are, chime in after I answer this. We have several people in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences who do work uh, in that area and intensely try to understand relationships between cortisol and, and health. Uh, this includes Alyssa Apple. Uh, Eric Prather and Owen Wolkowitz. Would anyone on the panel uh, have any thoughts about that? 
yeah i mean it's a yeah um yeah i mean so they are working on on cortisol i i don't work on cortisol um you know specifically but cortisol does directly modulate the immune system uh, and it's it's an interesting molecule because we know that cortisol levels can be elevated due to psychological stress um there's a very well-known test called the, uh, the the Trier social stress test, um, uh, where individuals are uh, asked to, to give uh, a public speech unprompted, um, and you can measure their blood cortisol levels and will increase. We know that cortisol can can dampen um, the immune system and, and may make individuals more susceptible um, to, to infection. Uh, on the other side of the equation, we also know that um, high cortisol levels can drive psychiatric symptoms, and so it's well known that. Um, in patients who are being treated for autoimmune disorders um, uh, that are being treated with high doses of cortisol, um, oftentimes you can uh, precipitate mania or depression or psychosis. And so um, there's, there's a rich body of literature um, that looks at the relationship between cortisol levels in, in someone's um, um, brain network state. Thank you. Another question, a very interesting one. I'm uh, looking forward to hearing the answers about this. We'll start with uh, Dr. Mitsuishi on it, and maybe others have thoughts as well. For complex cl clients, could a provisional diagnosis exacerbate symptoms? Is it better to be conservative or aggressive in diagnosing duly or triply diagnosed clients, given all we don't know? I think it's important to seek diagnosis to have the, to hopefully arrive at the proper treatment. I wonder if the question is actually asking about disclosure and conversation about what we think the diagnosis is um, and whether that disclosure leads to uh, sort of, uh, you know, difficult effects or is ultimately non-therapeutic. Um, I do think, however, also that as, as somebody who diagnoses a person in complex situations, we have to approach this problem with a lot of humility, which is that we don't, we frequently don't know what we're facing. Um, you know, somebody who is using a lot of like stimulant uh, methamphetamines, et cetera, and is experiencing psychosis, there's always a question as to whether this is due to the substance or whether this is there's an underlying psychotic disorder. And to go ahead and uh, diagnose that person with a primary psychotic psychotic illness may be problematic for the treatment of this person or for what it means for them in terms of what they, the treatments as they seek and the kind of label that they exist with. So I, I think that's the, where the question is going. Um, and maybe others have thoughts about this question, which is super interesting. Yeah, I, I think that the, you know, key one thing I wanted to emphasize that you mentioned, which is a lesson I've learned through many years in mental health is humility is critical and taking a stance of humility in face of the complexity we face is, is important. Dr. Bartley, any thoughts about this? You must see a lot of people who have great complexity and where the diagnosis is, uh, it, it is difficult to articulate for people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think um, it's important for us to write our diagnoses in pencil and not pen. Um, and you know, be willing to revise our diagnoses. I found that it's been incredibly valuable to really listen carefully to family members of patients, um, to hear you know, what they have to say about what their family member is experiencing and to listen to the patient as well, um, to really try to get a, a deep understanding of what they're experiencing. Um, and we've had examples of patients who have um, been diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder and then gone on to, 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 to receive a revised 
diagnosis of an autoimmune disorder. There was a woman in our research group um, who had uh, a diagnosis of conversion disorder for 11 years, um, which is essentially a, a, a neurologic manifestation of a psychological state. And so it's thought that the neurologic symptoms are really psychological in nature. And it turned out that this woman had an antibody to a protein called LGI1. Um, and that her neurologic symptoms were in, in fact mediated by the immune system. Um, and she was treated with immunotherapy uh, and, and was able to return to her baseline. Um, more recently, I've had a patient with a diagnosis of bipolar one disorder who also has high levels of autoantibodies that are associated with neurologic illness. Um, and because she has an underlying diagnosis, these antibodies were overlooked and, and she's been suffering for years with, with neurologic symptoms. Um, and so you know, through counsel and, and, and work with um, my neuro neurology colleagues, we were able to add this additional diagnosis to her underlying psychiatric diagnosis. And so I think, you know, um, we just have to be, be vigilant, you know, um, in, in terms of really thinking broadly um, and, and gathering as much data as we can from both families and patients and, and our other um, medical colleagues. Thank you. Dr. Lee, any thoughts about that question? Um, yeah, I, I agree with you, Andrew and, and Chris and Dr. Mitsuishi. Um, yeah, I think we need to approach a lot of situations with a lot of humility because the underlying basis of uh, mental health disorders is still unclear. And it, it may be that a lot of what we call a specific diagnosis is actually not just one disorder, but a series of, of separate biotypes that we've yet to uncover. And so, uh, so in my own line of work, we're trying to identify these different subtypes or biotypes of different uh, uh, um, network uh, pathologies that may actually, we, we currently attribute to being OCD, but in, in the future, we may actually think about them as more distinct entities than similar entities. Last question, uh, pretty very specific one for Dr. Mitsuishi. Is there greater mental health issues, are there greater mental health issues in single parent homes? Oh, gosh. Do I know how to answer that question? I don't. I don't think I can answer that question. Does anybody else know the answer to that? Um, I don't think of any that we know of any evidence of that per se. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can see that societally, it's a very, it can be a hefty strain on a family. But I don't know if that translates necessarily to diagnosable mental illness. Um, anybody else in the group willing to take on the challenge to this question? It may be one where the information isn't known, the research hasn't been, or just the five of us aren't aware of it, but it's a good question and it points to one of those kinds of things that's important for us to learn about, among many others. But um, I, I'm gonna have to, uh, well, we're gonna have to move on now at this point. Unfortunately, I wish we had more time for the questions, but the innovations that we, talked about today and others coming out of UCSF at UCSF re represent wonderful opportunities to improve mental health care. And really for us to achieve our bold vision of translating these advances into the delivery of personalized cutting edge treatment, it's gonna require a huge effort and substantial resources. As we head towards the end of this program, I wanted to give each of our speakers a final opportunity to discuss what they see as the biggest opportunities and the biggest challenges. I'm going to start with Dr. Mitsuishi. Could you um, give us your perspective? Yeah, so um, this is such an important uh, thing to highlight opportunities and challenges. 
Um, I think, so first of all, I just want to say that the GAIN project is funded by philanthropy and we are so, we feel so grateful to have the support to do a project that would otherwise not happen. Um, And with that, what I've been thinking a lot about and many of my colleagues have been is how can we get support to create a center of excellence for public psychiatry? This would be an innovation hub for bold new ideas including things like digital belonging, that can change how we tackle broad social issues faced by people who experience behavioral challenges. And the point of that is to bring a scientific framework to assess the evidence behind these ideas. Um, It's really also exciting that there's a high level of interest and social concern and public funds available to tackle many of these uh, behavioral health connected social problems. And, uh, but honestly, that uh, more support is needed in the area. Uh, The challenges that we face are uh, inadequate infrastructure support in the entire public behavioral health system of care. Um, Also the need to address um, something that I will call moral injury, moral distress, moral injury, and vicarious trauma of our providers, uh, and this is a hefty toll that it's it's um, it's sort of levying on our folks. Uh, lastly, uh, there's a significant shortage of trained clinicians due to the inadequate compensation in an area with high cost of living like the Bay Area. So those are really the big, big challenges that we're facing. Thank you, um, Dr. Barley. Yeah, um, I think that you know. One of the biggest challenges for me is in the clinical setting, um, when I suspect that there's an underlying immune process, um, it can be a real real challenge to do the diagnostic immunologic workup for that patient. Um, and oftentimes this is just due to um, you know, the complexity of the medical billing system. Um, and it, it just it serves as a roadblock um, you know, in terms of getting the data that I need to, to really come to what I believe might be the right diagnosis. Um, I think that that challenge also, you know, creates an opportunity on the research side, um, which is that um, although, you know, we may not be able to do as deep a workup as we'd like to in the clinical setting, we may be able to develop integrated clinics where patients are co-enrolled as both patients, but also as research participants on a voluntary basis um, where we have the funding support or may be able to get the funding support to really do that um, next generation deep immunologic profiling um, that we think will start to identify some of these subtypes or biotypes um, with with immune uh, driven uh, mental illnesses. Fantastic. Thanks. And Dr. Lee. Yeah. So as I mentioned, one of the goals of uh, my research program is to make sure that every patient that I see in clinic uh, receives a thorough imaging workup and has access to advanced TMS care. Um, So unfortunately, one of the main limitations that my clinic is facing is that uh, imaging to characterize patients' OCD networks, as well as these novel TMS protocols that we're developing, they're currently not covered by insurance. Uh, So this limits our uh, ability to you know, do this deep uh, network phenotyping, as well as providing uh, treatments that uh, could help patients who otherwise um, don't benefit from conventional therapies. Um, so for this reason, a lot of my current work is funded by, a phil- by philanthropic gifts. Uh, in particular, I'd like to acknowledge the Foundation for OCD Research, who has been supporting a lot of the studies that I've mentioned today. And so, um, so I'd really uh, appreciate their uh, support, and it, it's really uh, helping us launch um, these sort of uh, tertiary and quaternary care uh, clinical programs for OCD patients. Thank you. Lot, lots of needs for important goals and that will have big impacts. Um, 
Dr. Skangos, you get the last word. Well, I think in the future, we have a real opportunity for our work to develop personalized DBS for the patients who have the most treatment-resistant disease. Um, we're going to need to scale up the research and run larger studies. So we're currently running a trial in 12 subjects. If the results are promising, like they seem to be, we'll need to perform a larger trial and eventually a multi-site trial as well. A second challenge that's also an opportunity is the translation of these personalized brain stimulation treatment paradigms into non-invasive care that can reach a broader population. So using EEG and imaging, we may be able to develop a correlate of our intracranial biomarker, that neural signature, and then use other brain stimulation approaches, some of which you've heard about today, um, to deliver treatment, such as TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or even focused ultrasound. So I think you know, these goals are achievable at UCSF because we have an unusually collaborative environment here um, and a real commitment towards developing personalized psychiatric treatments grounded in an understanding of brain circuits. So I'm excited about the future. Thank you. It, it sounds like that people face a di wide variety of a set of challenges, but one of them is the limitations in uh, current insurance funding and current funding for care in general. Would you agree that that is among the bigger challenges you face? Is it's hard to make that um, bridge. You develop uh, exciting new approaches and innovations, but there's, you have to fit that into a model of care that includes insurance-based reimbursement that's grounded in a certain structure and a way of doing things that um, may make it hard for us to implement these innovations. So I wish you all luck with doing that because I think you're, you're doing amazing work. It's exciting to see and just so important to get that work translated into the clinic and to help people who need it. Um, Unfortunately, it's all the time that we have for today's program. Um, I want to thank all of you, all my colleagues at UCSF, for this really important and exciting conversation, for sharing your really innovative work. It's wonderful to see. And I want to thank uh, the John Pritzker Fund for its support of this program and UCSF overall. And, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for uh, hosting this exciting conversation. This program and others on mental health, funded by the John Pritzker Family Fund, can be found on the Commonwealth Club's website at www.commonwealth.org. And I'm Andrew Crystal of UCSF, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. Cheers, we raise our glass to good health. On Friday, November 19th, for the Commonwealth Club's virtual gala. This year, we celebrate healthcare heroes who have kept the Bay Area healthy and safe. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash 2021 gala to learn more. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.